Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, a warm welcome to our audience to this CGIR IFPRI event, which is coordinated with the UNFSS uh, scientific group. We will be focusing today on how best to support developing countries' efforts to undertake food systems transformation with a particular um, focus on the second uh, sustainable uh, development goal, which of course is to end hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. This is a hugely important topic, obviously, in the run-up to the UNFSS, and even more important uh, considering the tremendous increase in inequalities that have resulted from the COVID crisis. We have a great uh, uh, set of speakers, and we are then going to be very eager to hear from all of you. To participate in our Q&A session uh, that will follow the presenters, uh, remarks, please do submit your comments uh, and questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. So it's now my pleasure to turn over the mic to uh, Jo Swinnen, who is the Director General of IFPRI. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Happy to have you uh, join our event here today on, on what I think is really crucial issue going forward for um, for our future and for the food uh, system in uh, and for the food system summit also and particularly for the uh, this is an important year 2021 of course uh, food system transformation is a key part of our work at ifpre it, you could even say it's at the heart of our work at ifpre uh, our global food policy report of last year and of this year was very much about uh, food systems this year was about food systems transformation uh, particularly. Now, there are, of course, many aspects involved in, in the food system transformation, uh, but finance is certainly a very important element, a key element, also an element where uh, economists are, um, <clears throat> are hoping, uh, we can hope that they can make an important contribution on this element in order to make this uh, food system transformation, which is so much needed, possible. Uh, when we talk about finance, we talk about finance in a, in, a, in a broad sense. We look at the private sector, to the public sector, both uh, international and, and domestic uh, financial aspects. Um, and uh, so, for example, aid is part of that, food industry investments, of course, um, uh, consumer expenditures, capital markets, banking expenditures or investments or loans. Uh, all these things are part of this uh, system. IFPRI has been thinking and analyzing uh, on uh, these issues and has been putting forward a number of ideas of, uh, for making this possible. You will hear several of these ideas being presented today. Um, Eugenio Diaz-Bonilla, who is the first speaker, has played an important role in our work on this, together with Rob Foss. Um, uh, Eugenio was also the lead author of uh, a report that we did for the scientific committee of the Food System Summit, precisely on this uh, on this topic. And Eugenio has written several blogs on this, and so the blogs are available or easy to find actually on our dedicated website on the Food Systems. Uh, summit uh, and our work for this. I should also mention uh, Rob Voss is also on the panel. Rob has led IFPRI's work on repurposing agricultural subsidies where we look at public expenditures and whether we can use those most more uh, efficiently, effectively for transforming our food systems in ways that make our food system more sustainable and more nutritious going forward as well. This is work which is done uh, together with the World Bank and also, for example, for the G20 and a number of other international um, 
events, organizations, institutions who are benefiting from this. Uh, IFPRI is also co-leading together with the World Bank and the Food and Land Use Coalition, the finance lever of the Food uh, System Summit. And uh, so, for example, tomorrow there is a, a finance public forum, which I'm welcoming all of you to join. And we will also be active at the pre-summit later this month in, in Rome. Uh, obviously, as part of this, we have been interacting with many of the action tracks, discussing a lot of the ideas that are coming out of there. And, uh, and particularly today, we will focus more on the work that we have done for the, the scientific committee of the Food System Summit and present and discuss some of these ideas. So there's a lot going on. I am really excited. If I look who's on the panel here today, I think we have an excellent panel, an excellent set of speakers, and I'm looking forward to what they have to say and uh, taking this forward and also looking forward to the debate that will follow. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Yo, uh, for uh, setting the scene for, for this uh, event. Um, we will now turn to Eugenio Diaz Bonilla, who is the head of the Latin American and Caribbean program here at IFPRI and has been, as Yo mentioned, very intimately involved with the preparations um, for the IFPRI work on financing food systems transformation. And he will be presenting um, uh, the, the paper that was prepared for the science group. Over to you, Eugenio. Thank you very much, uh, Charlotte and Joe. Thank you very much to the panelists and all the audience. So we are talking about financing the transformation of food systems. So the first question, what is transformation? And in the context of the UN System Summit, what are the, uh, the sustainable development goals that we want to achieve? Uh, and of course, food systems affect a lot of the SDGs or they have impact on a lot of SDGs. Therefore, you need to define what is the policy space of your analysis, is that the transformation. From that, you decide what, what needs to be done, who should be doing it, and then the costs, and then the question of financing. Financing, in the paper that we wrote with uh, uh, Joe and, and Rob, uh, we look at six flow of funds, two internal and four external, and I'm gonna uh, use that conceptual framework to uh, do the presentation. So as Joe mentioned, is the for the scientific group, the, the question was, look at the zero hunger and uh, expanded to SDG2. So we look at different estimates, and <clears throat> Karen will talk about some of those estimates. But we were, uh, let's say, how much does it cost to take 1 billion people, leave 1 billion people from hunger by 2030, that considering the potential impact of the pandemic? And from that, you estimate what, the, what are the available funds or source of funds that you can have. And of course, that has to be in the context of macroeconomic stability, good governance, and peace. But uh, the, uh, the overall uh, analysis of the paper, and, and this is just an outline of the paper that I will go in greater detail, uh, we do have the financial resources at the world level to achieve SDG2 and zero hunger by 2030. But you need a specific programs at the country level. And for that, one of the proposals that builds on work that Action Track One uh, did, and um, Lawrence, Haddad, and, and Karen, and there's also related to some proposals by uh, personalities like Pope Francis, the idea of having a zero hunger fund. And we are talking about a zero hunger alliance and fund. I'll go close with that, but then I'm going specifically in each one of the financial flows. Um, of course, as, as um, uh, Joe mentioned, 
the the basic flow is what the consumer expenditure. That's probably around 10, 11, 12 percent of the global GDP. And those are the sales or the income from the value chain operator, from the small farmer in Honduras or in Kenya to the supermarkets, international supermarkets or food chains. There, there are a lot of policy intervention being discussed at the UN uh, Food System Summit that may shape uh, this, uh, reallocate these flows, consumer expenditures and also the producer side. For the consumer, you can have um, uh, taxes and subsidies and, of course, uh, labeling, uh, frontal, frontal labels, um, uh, regulation related to advertisement in children and in schools and so on. So you have several interventions at the consumer level, uh, food uh, uh, cash transfers, uh, food programs and so on. And also on the producer side, you can have uh, different interventions from infrastructure, agricultural R&D, regulations on uh, composition of, um, of uh, food products, regulations about safety, regulations about um, uh, adequate um, the wages in, 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 in the value chains and so on. But we're not, not considering that financing per se. We are looking at the four external flow of funds, which I'm going to go right now. Um, the first one is international development funds. Uh, we have uh, around, uh, about uh, $260 billion in general. And from that 4%, which it's about $11, $12 billion, go to agriculture, forestry, and fishing. Um, one of the proposals that come from the work that said is uh, 2030, F, uh, the CEF and uh, FAO, is that we probably need to more than double that to 11 to 12, 14 billion dollars a year. Uh, that may come from redistribution within the money that is already there or some expansion. But the main point is not only increasing, but how you use it. And that is very important to use it in a blended finance uh, structure that help to uh, reduce risk for um, uh, the, this, this potential investment. In that sense, we are considering uh, the, the idea of uh, relocating uh, uh, or allocating 2% of the coming uh, uh, special drawing rights that the IMF uh, has uh, approved. It's about six, uh, $650 billion. So use 2% of that to create a guarantee fund for the emission of uh, zero hunger bonds that I'll, I'll talk just a little bit at the end. Uh, this is a mechanism that hopefully can be used also for the pandemic recovery bonds. If you uh, allocate a larger amount, 10% or 15% of, uh, of these uh, special drawing rights that now are being considered to use like one one, while in fact, if you use it, use it as a guarantee, it can really multiply the impact of those funds. So moving to the public expenditures, we did calculations uh, looking to developing countries, but without China, you have the numbers there. The main point is what, that in the case, we look at agricultural expenditures and social assistance. So social assistance is social expenditure related to poverty and vulnerable populations. Um, the, the main point is that agricultural expenditures Compared to the GDP, the agricultural GDP in developing countries, it's only 30% of the importance of the GDP. That's what the uh, uh, Agricultural Orientation Index shows. 0.3 means that the only you're getting, compared to the value of the GDP, is only a 30%. And in terms of the social assistance, it's about the median for all developing countries that we looked at. It's about 1.2 uh, uh, 
percentage of the, of the GDP. So the, the, the proposal is to try at least to increase the agricultural orientation index to more than 0.5 and social uh, protection uh, expenditures, social assistance expenditures to more than 2% uh, of the GDP. To do that, there are two sides. No? You have to look at the public expenditures, who have public expenditure reviews to, um, to see how you can reallocate the funds, how can you uh, improve the design of the of the of these operations on the public sector. And we are uh, suggesting that it be important to look at the instrument, these redesigned cash transfer programs that the FAO calls cash, uh, cash transfer plus. The World Bank is working on, on these instruments in what it's called uh, social inclusion. Uh, these are comp more complex instruments that have cash transfers for poverty with a poverty component, a productive component, environmental component, and nutrition component. So this is not only trying to increase looking at the public expenditures, but also redesign better this, the, this uh, instrument, the safety nets. And of course, you look. You need to look at uh, the, uh, the revenue side, and there are several internal measures that we are discussing. But but it's also crucial that we need international measures are needed to help developing countries uh, to um, recover part of the, of the taxes that are being uh, dissipated through different uh, problems of corruption. Uh, uh, and uh, for instance, now the G7 is considering this global uh, corporate uh, tax. But then it's not only that, but how that resources uh, will be um, uh, allocated or shared with developing countries. Then the other area that we looked at is banking. We have some data there. And again, the amount of loans to the or the, the stock of loans to the agricultural sector is only 30% of, of the importance of the GDP. So we are suggesting to increase again. Uh, uh, and the numbers that by chance are similar to the ones in the public expenditure to expand to about 0.5. But for, to do that, you need to look at the whole banking system uh, and you, you need to look at the macroeconomic flow of funds, the regulations, the institutions, um, the, the instruments, and the, then the operation and delivery modes in which digital, digital uh, revolution will have, can have a, a big impact. Within that, we are, you know, in the past, the agricultural sector was mainly financing a lot of developing countries through what it was called the developmental central banks. They had rediscounts. Rediscounts are lines of credit that they gave to basically to public sector banks, and then that was on loan to farmers uh, for several purposes. We are not saying, and they, this was mostly discontinued because of inflationary problems with these rediscounts that were creating an excess of money money supply, and the problems that the public banks had in terms of uh, corruption and misallocation of resources, and they had to bail out and so on and so forth. We are, not saying to go back to the bad old days, but we need to reconsider this structure if we really want to expand the lending, uh, particularly if we want to look at lending to small farmers, SMEs, women, uh, in, in native populations and youth that, that will need some dedicated funds uh, to do that. Then we go to um, capital markets. The estimates vary, you know, they are not, not a single place where all the information is collected. Uh, but there are significant amounts of money, mostly on the bonds, on the dedicated bonds, green bonds, social bonds, and so on. The problem is how you create a project of investable opportunities. For that, we are suggesting the possibility of a project preparation 
uh, uh, acceleration facility to scale up climate smart agriculture. And Daisy will talk about what the CGR is doing on that. And this idea of a zero hunger bonds that would be perpetual bonds with a, a floating interest rate, but capped at certain level of interest, which may be the average of the last 50 years, and use the 2% of the new um, special drawing rights to, do, to guarantee these, uh, these bonds. Being perpetual will also help to reduce the flows of payment, substituting some of the debt that uh, some of the developing countries have uh, now. And as I said before, even bigger impact if you can use the same scheme to guarantee these pandemic uh, recovery bonds. Okay, these are the four, the four flows, but again, how you put all this together? It happens at the country level. You know, the transformation happens at the country level. That's why uh, we were uh, suggesting the idea of a zero hunger alliance. Karen will also talk about the end of hunger coalition. There are similar ideas how, how you can bring the public and private sector to um, eliminate hunger, but that can happen only at the country level. So this idea of having a zero hunger alliance and fund to support countries that join this alliance to prepare these zero hunger programs that include not only zero hunger, uh, include nutritional and environmental components, probably with staff seconded from international organizations and with a dedicated fund. Dedicated fund may have $2 billion a year from the additional international development funds, but also contribution from private sector companies that may be called champions of zero hunger. And of course, the use of the zero hunger bonds issued by countries in the alliance. So this is the summary of the program. Basically, we do have the resources. We need to put all this together and all this needs to happen at the country level. That's why um, the suggestions or proposals that we have in the, in the, in the paper or the, the, the document that we prepare, the study that we prepare for the scientific group. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Eugenio. We now have a, a, a great uh, panel um, to discuss some of these ideas in more detail. It's a very rich paper, and we're, we're really grateful for all of you to participate here in, in this discussion. For the audience, please do send us your questions. Um, you can do that on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. Um, now we turn to Karen Smaller. She is the Director for Agriculture, Trade and Investment at the International Institute for Sustainable Development, a very good partner of IFPRI. Um, Karen worked with others on the important Ceres 2030 paper, and she will walk us through some of the estimates that are coming out of that paper in terms of uh, additional resources needed um, to uh, get, get us to where we want to get. Over to you, Karen. Thanks, Charlotte, um, and thanks, Eugenio, for, for sharing with us how, when we get this additional finance, how we're going to actually be able to channel it um, in the right ways. So as Charlotte said, I want to focus on the financing gap, how we can raise it, and what we can do about this gap. And just before I start, I, I, I have to say that I think this question is so much more urgent now than it was even yesterday because yesterday we had the tsunami hit us with the new hunger numbers being released by the UN, um, which I think, I mean, personally for me, they were devastating and shocking and they confirmed what we've been, what we projected last year, actually. They confirmed our worst fear. And I think this challenge now of bringing this additional financing to the food system is so much more urgent than ever. And the focus on hunger 
is so much more urgent than ever. Um, for those who didn't see it, we've got 120 million more people hungry last year than the year before. That's a 20% increase. And it, what it effectively means is we've wiped out or COVID-19 and the economic fallout from COVID-19 has wiped out 15 years of progress. So I really think it's a timely moment for us to be talking about what needs to be done to get financing to um, the agriculture sector. Um, so I'm gonna um, share with you the results of this project series 2030 which is a partnership between IFPRI, IISD and Cornell University. But actually it involved 86 researchers from 25 countries and 53 different organizations. It was a three year project to answer two questions. What is the most effective way to achieve SDG two? Zero hunger and how much is it gonna cost? And I'm going to focus on this financing gap. How much is it going to cost for this um, panel today? The financing gap. So what we found was that it will cost an additional $33 billion per year from now until 2030 to end hunger, double the incomes and productivity of small-scale producers, while at the same time, doing that and maintaining our greenhouse gas emissions below the commitments made in the Paris Climate Agreement. This 33 billion additional does include the projections we had for how bad COVID would make hunger. So we had with IFPRI projected that this would happen, what was announced yesterday, and these numbers therefore do include those projections. Okay, so with this additional amount, we will be able to also address the hunger numbers that we heard about yesterday. Of the $33 billion, there's a share that comes from domestic resource mobilization and a share that has to come from external resources. And Eugenio also showed that difference between the external and the domestic. So within the 33 billion, 19 out of the 33 billion has to come from domestic resource mobilization from the countries themselves, through loans, through increased taxes, through other means. 14 out of the $33 billion per year needs to come from external resources. And we really focused on the role of overseas development assistance or ODA or the role of donors. Um, but this is the external resource needs per year um, for the next 10 years. And I'm really going to focus now on that external resource mobilization that we need rather than the domestic one. Before I tell you how that rolls out, I just wanted to em emphasize the importance when we looked at what interventions were needed to achieve these goals of zero hunger, we looked at a portfolio of interventions rather than single actions. And we grouped our findings in three big buckets. Investments that need to happen on the farm. So things like investments in research and development, in improving livestock feed to improve productivity of the livestock sector, in improving access to irrigation, everything on the farm. 
There's a second bucket of investments that needs to happen to move food to markets. So that's all your value chain type investments that are off farm and that get you to the consumer. And then our third bucket is all the types of public sector investments that need to happen to empower the excluded, to give them access to the basic capital that they need to be able to benefit from all the other investments happening on the farm and on the move. So in our Empower the Excluded category, we have a lot of the social protection programs. Eugenia also referred to them. We have access to education and vocational training, but we also have the social investments, like helping people be, be part of farmers' organizations or other social networks to enable them to benefit from the increased economic activity. What our $14 billion a year from external resources means in current donor spending is roughly a doubling of current amounts. Again, Eugenio gave you the figure of 12 to 14 billion additional. That's consistent with our findings as well and with a number of other findings from reports. And I think uh, Joachim von Braun is also here. That was also part of a study last year that also found we need to double external resources to low and middle income countries. So we indeed found that we need to double um, spending in um, low and middle income countries. The big question though, is how are we gonna raise this additional um, $33 billion a year? So the good news is it seems like governments and development banks are responding. We've already seen quite a lot of new announcements just this year alone, whether it was from the G7, the African Development Bank, um, there was an initiative um, hosted by the UAE and the US during the uh, Biden's, Biden's um, climate summit, which announced a new initiative on agricultural innovation. Um, there was the G7 announcing a pledge of $8.5 billion more, and there was uh, commitments by African governments to double their agricultural productivity and spend more in the agriculture sector. So there's already some good signs that governments and development banks are responding. But I want to talk to you about something that's happening as part of the UN Food System Summit and that's emerged from it to try and get the private sector to also pledge more money. So what is this, what's the role of the private sector in all of this? And how can we bring the private sector much more into helping raise this additional finance? So there's an initiative coming out of the, the, the Food System Summit called the Zero Hunger Nourish the Future Pledge for the Private Sector. And basically it has a target to secure an additional $5 billion per year for the next 10 years of private sector resources and specifically to get companies to sign a pledge that says they will increase and align their investments um, to help end hunger and nourish the future by 2030. And they will work with governments and development banks. They'll align their investments um, according to the most effective ways the evidence is saying they should be investing their money and in the countries that need it most. Um, the pledge will probably be announced as an initiative as part of the pre-summit and then will be launched at the summit itself in September. My last slide is just to say that 
if we are able to mobilize these additional um, external resources, the gains will be tremendous. So the results of the modeling work that were led by IFPRI on this found that if we do mobilize these additional external resources, we could remove 500 million people from hunger, 545 million small-scale producers could have their incomes doubled on average. And we can do this all while at the same time keeping emissions in agriculture below the target set in the Paris Climate Agreement. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Karen, for highlighting the urgency of of this effort and for your really very clear presentation of what it's, what's required to get there and some of the ideas that are being floated on how to do that. Uh, because even though we've had encouraging announcements, it's clear that that is not yet enough. Um, so we're now actually gonna move to the other source of, um, of funding. Um, uh, Karen, of course, looked mostly at the, the, the um, overseas development assistance and Rob Voss, who serves as the Director of Markets, Trade and Institutions Division at IFPRI is going to look at some of the um, domestic uh, funding um, and in particular that part of domestic funding that is right now spent on, um, let's call them subsidies or other kinds of support policies in, in the agricultural sector. Over to you, Rob. Uh, thank you very much, um, Charlotte, and um, good afternoon, good morning to everyone. Um, actually, we'll uh, talk a bit more in particular about uh, incentives before I get to talk about uh, finance. So if go, if go to the next slide. Um, so if we think of uh, resources that governments already provide to in support of agricultural sectors and all kinds of forms of support, uh, according to the latest OECD report that sums for the countries that the money is available for, or the data are available for, uh, sums to $700 billion per year. So we only need to take 5% of that money and we can uh, cover uh, Karen's uh, financing gap uh, to end uh, hunger. But I think we have to think about um, not just in terms of do we really need more finance in first instance, or do we make need to make sure that the incentives to producers but also to consumers are such that they make the right decisions when it comes to investing in their farms and the food systems uh, and also in uh, what the diets they choose um, to consume. So uh, I think it's uh, very useful. That's the work that we've been doing is to look at um, what is the current support doing to agriculture sectors, but it trickles down to the rest of the food system. Um, and so what would happen if we repurpose uh, that support um, that $700 billion in, in better ways than uh, maybe uh, is uh, taking place uh, now. And maybe with that, since also recognizing that the, um, the, the food sector is mainly driven by market forces, by private sector agents, so they'll follow what the market incentives are and governments can influence them. So maybe currently governments are not providing the right type of incentives. So, the main first main purpose of looking at this agenda is how can we create better incentives for 
uh, decision maker for investments in more sustainable uh, uh, production and more sustainable uh, consumption. So if we go to the next slide and um, if we look at what the current support uh, looks like, uh, here the number is a bit lower than what I just mentioned, 640 billion, that was uh, with the previous uh, estimate, that's uh, something, a number we use for our analysis of the repurposing uh, scenarios. Um, so that's a, a lot of money and uh, actually most of that is uh, currently these days provided by developing countries to their agricultural sectors that used to be um, more in developed countries than in developing countries. And actually uh, in years or decades before, uh, many developing countries also gave uh, negative support to the sector actually uh, taxing the agricultural uh, sectors um, uh, in one way or the other in some countries. And that still is the case in a country like India, for, for instance. Yeah, but what we're talking about is what kind of incentives are a country providing. Uh, most of the support that's being provided, so the positive support, is in the form of what uh, economists call market distorting measures, that is uh, providing coupled subsidies linked to levels of production, use of inputs, or by protecting uh, the flow of uh, food products uh, at the border through import tariffs, or in some cases also um, export uh, taxes and uh, export bans. So uh, part of that, a big part of that support is that, or maybe more than half of that support, and I'll, I'll focus mostly on that. And a relatively small amount of the support goes for um, either what's called green subsidies. 17% um, uh, is for research and development and infrastructure, and uh, um, just about 100 billion, globally speaking, uh, is um, for consumer subsidies to support consumers. So it's uh, important to understand so how this works, but we, uh, probably a lot can be done to repurpose, and I'll come back a little bit later on some political economy questions, how this is being distributed. So if we go to the next slide. So I'm going to present to you two scenarios of what would happen if we repurpose the support. The first is what some people have been calling for uh, for a long time. I think that the uh, particularly the market support uh, measures are uh, not a good way to go, and maybe it's better to phase that out, may provide the wrong incentives. So this first um, scenario, uh, we'll look at, uh, looks at the removal of what we call all distorting support in the form of coupled subsidies, as well as uh, border measures. And the second scenario, I'll look at how, what if we repurpose that in different ways that will more closely meet the goals of the Food System Summit of making food systems more sustainable uh, and hunger uh, and achieve uh, all the targets for SDG2. So if you look at um, the current subsidies and if we would remove them, actually surprisingly, it does very little overall to the global economy. It's a very small impact. Um, it has very little impact on poverty reduction. Uh, and actually it's uh, uh, taking away the support, uh, uh, the one sector that would be hurt and harmed would be actually the farm sector in terms of real incomes, but also uh, employment in the sector. Um, taking away that subsidy uh, would also do very little to the environment and a very small impact on the greenhouse gas emissions might decrease of it, uh, and um, even though this would uh, reduce um, 
production uh, have a slight uh, uh, impact on on, uh, on production. Uh, sorry, it's, it's a slight positive impact on overall production, but with lower productivity. Um, but uh, nature, uh, in terms of uh, evasion of uh, forest hab habitat for expansion agricultural land, would um, reduce it slightly in developed. Uh, developing countries, uh, uh, sorry, developed countries and increase in developing uh, countries. So overall, um, a scenario where we would take away the support um, per se uh, would not help us uh, much further. So we go to the next slide. So we've done quite a few scenarios, but here's one that uh, provides uh, uh, probably the most benign impacts that we can uh, look at. Um, I won't go through all details, but the main message from the scenarios that, and from reviewing all the other scenarios we've done, any repurposing of the subsidies um, should ensure that it doesn't go at cost of efficiency or productivity losses. Otherwise, the trade-offs in terms of impacts on poverty, food prices, uh, and so on, would be um, um, taking us further away from other goals. Um, so in this scenario, if we re would repurpose for more investments in R&D in uh, that, that improve productivity, but also reduce uh, emissions and uh, invest in more sustainable uh, technologies, uh, that could have quite a few benign impacts. And uh, although, again, here the farm sector is, is hurt because of taking away subsidies, but also because of the efficiency increases, food prices would decline. Overall, this uh, has uh, quite a few uh, positive uh, impacts. And if we do that, we go to the next and my last slide. Um, so then we can have uh, overall uh, uh, societal gains in, in the form of more welfare, less poverty, less emissions, and uh, also incentives for better diets. So this would be what it would do to producer behavior and to consumer behavior. And maybe that's uh, what I would call the best form of improved uh, finance, because um, that would also help uh, then make the better um, production, investment, and consumption uh, decisions. But then that would likely also, if there's that where the profits uh, can be made in the sector, will crowd in uh, finance through this uh, repurposed uh, support. Of course, the changing these incentives through these uh, repurposing of the support measures is not. The entire story, but certainly, and that would argue, should be a big part of the story. Now, to close, of course, that's easier said than done. In the scenarios I showed, we assume that all countries agree to do the same and move uh, their uh, support uh, measures in the same direction. Um, but of course, uh, as I mentioned, uh, there will be some uh, losers in the process. It could be the farm sector. So, what can should be done? to make um, the farm sector not lose out uh, too much. Uh, also, um, this is assumed to be an internationally concerted solution with um, well, policies uh, are basically national, but not just that. Also, the current support is very unevenly distributed across countries. So China, for instance, already provides almost one third of all support measures uh, that are handed out uh, globally. So without um, international transfer mechanisms, we won't uh, get there. So let me leave it at that. But so there will be enormous political economy uh, aspects to it that we need to um, address. 
But I think if we don't um, look at these incentive schemes and the support measures that drive these production investment and consumption decisions, then throwing more money at the problem may not be a solution. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much, Rob. So in a nutshell, simply doing away with these measures is not going to um, necessarily create a more sustainable outcome. Um, but it is very important to be very smart about how we repurpose uh, the $700 billion uh, support. And I would direct uh, our audience to an event that if we hosted with our Chinese and Indian partners um, on July 7th, you will find that on the IFRI website, which was exclusively on this very important topic. Um, now, um, our next speaker is uh, Bettina Prato. She serves as the Senior Coordinator for the Smallholder and Agri SME Finance and Investment Network at EFAD, uh, the International Fund for Agricultural Development. And Bettina will speak to us today um, she, by the way, is the financial advisor to all of the action tracks, so a very important role um, that she's playing in the run-up to the UNFSS. She's going to speak about uh, the challenge and pitfalls of seeking scale in terms of mobilizing new financial resources and how some of the action track proposals are actually looking at how to uh, address those uh, challenges and, and pitfalls. Thank you very much, Bettina. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, everyone. Uh, let me start by saying I'm actually the finance advisor to Action Track 4. Uh, not all of the Action Tracks, uh, there's uh, also other colleagues that are advising on, on the other Action Tracks. This is an Action Track that focuses on equitable livelihoods. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, that gives you a, a bit of a sense of why um, I will be offering some of the thoughts that I will be offering now on thinking about the challenge of achieving scale. And by scale, I mean scale of financial mobilization, but also scale of alignment of the financial sector to uh, all that is required to uh, redirect investments in food systems towards uh, the uh, sustainable development uh, goals. So we talked a little bit about the reasons why scale of mobilization and scale or breadth of alignment of the financial ecosystem is so important. Uh, we heard from Eugenio, uh, but also Rob and, uh, and Karen about this. I mean, I will just say um, food systems have a huge economic, social and environmental footprint. We know quite a bit about that specifically in relation to agriculture, but there is much more than agriculture that enters into food systems from an employment standpoint, from an, uh, a point of view of GDP contribution, as well as of uh, environmental footprint. What is interesting in relation to the investment needs and opportunities is that often we hear about the data related to um, unmet financing needs, okay, for specific categories of actors, smallholder farmers, SMEs, and so forth. As accurate or, or reliable as these figures may be, what I want to point out is that the estimates that we have in terms of unmet needs are generally based on business as usual. And it's interesting to see how investment needs, but also opportunities really escalate in terms of size. When you start thinking about the transitions that need to, that require uh, investment. And I think, you know, everyone is familiar with, um, with the follow 
uh, report from uh, 2019 that highlighted the number of, of transitions that are required in food systems. And there we start seeing the trillions uh, come into, into the picture. Now, in terms of reaching scale, why is reaching scale so problematic when it comes to mobilizing uh, capital, but also aligning the breadth of the financial ecosystem? There are demand fragmentation uh, challenges as well as supply fragmentation challenges. I'm not gonna go through all of this because there's a lot of text in the slide, but the point I want to make is that we are dealing with um, uh, systems where most economic operators are quite small, small or medium in size, and most of the investable transactions are also relatively small in size. Not only that, but many operators in, in, in food and agriculture are uh, located in fairly fragmented or not well-structured value chains or markets. So there's real difficulty in aggregating up um, transaction or investment opportunities that can be uh, financed through large scale units of, of finance. And that is a major issue when it comes to thinking about scale. On the supply side, we're looking at a fairly fragmented um, financial ecosystem in terms of types of institutions, in terms of funds and facilities, in terms of types of institutions that very often operate without necessarily full awareness of how to best complement each other. Uh, Eugenio, you spoke about the importance of blending. If we look at uh, where agriculture itself, and I'm not even looking at the rest, of course, of, of the food system uh, space, where it stands in terms of a share of current transactions is not very high. But what is most uh, of concern, I think, is that the average size of transactions in the blended finance space, when it comes to food and ag, tend to be smaller than in other sectors. Again, this is a problem, why? Because for individual investors with large capital mobilization capabilities, size of unit of investments uh, matters. This is just an illustration of the point I was making. Now, scale is very important, but it's also uh, potentially problematic to look at the, the challenge of mobilizing finance, of aligning finance, solely through this uh, volume uh, lens. Why? First of all, because uh, uh, evidence shows that we still need a lot of experimentation to identify what are the best types of financing structures, financial products, et cetera, that can support innovative business models, adoption of new technologies, uh, new forms of, of value chain uh, relations in the sector. So need for small scale bespoke, highly innovation, nurturing um, financial solutions. We also face um, an interesting situation where the, the market of investors that are interested in green impact is much more advanced, more mature, larger than the market of investors that are interested in nutrition impact or inclusion impact. Some of the aspects of the food system agenda that also very much require scaling up of investment. If we go for large scale as a main objective, in the short term, do we not risk leaving behind these as secondary development impact areas? Third, of course, it's, it's easier to mobilize large volumes of finance in specific types of projects and value chains. And there is a risk of leaving behind 
smaller actors, value chains that are maybe more, very important for local food systems, for example, but not necessarily structured enough to be appealing for larger investors. And finally, if we look at financial service providers, for uh, the smaller scale clients, sometimes women uh, more than men, sometimes you know, uh, farmers that operate in the more remote areas, for example, it's still very important to maintain this high transaction, costly, high touch way of engaging with clients to understand their needs and to earn their trust before we can think about more scalable technology-enabled solutions. Now, it's possible to manage this tension between scale and depth of impact. And, you know, I'm just referring here to a report we produced with Convergence recently where we looked at how this could look like, um, what this could look like in the blended finance space. And this is an issue also that I think we are seeing coming out of the action track solutions. In the action tracks, we have seen about a dozen, uh, two dozen solutions focused entirely or largely on finance. And although none of them, or most of them at least, uh, do not really meet the ambition of scale that either Karen laid out, you know, in relation to the, the um, these fourteen additional billions or uh, you know, sort of the, the, the um, uh, broader sort of in size of investment needs that uh, I referred to um, at the outset, we see some examples of uh, proposals for large vehicles that aggregate capital with an intention to impact on how markets work. For example, a proposal for a regional de-risking capital facility that is going to accelerate also learning standardization, um, technical assistance, uh, curricula standardization for agri-SME lenders in Africa. There's also proposals to strengthen the infrastructure of financial service providers to maintain this balance of high-touch, high-tech. You know, for example, a proposal for really scaling up um, the use of, of uh, client-friendly digital solutions for rural clients uh, uh, within food systems. Third, modeling examples of vehicles that are able to connect multiple impact areas that don't necessarily have large scale right now, but that can be replicated for large scale of impact. For example, Agri3 fund, but also fund that the CGIR is supporting with uh, responsibility. And finally, it's the last point, also some proposals to strengthen the capacity of some development finance institutions that can really, because of their mandate, connect depth and scale. Eugenio, you refer to the public development banks, and indeed there is a proposal for a public development bank platform. To conclude, again, when we think about scale, it's very important that we don't forget depth of impact. There can be various ways to balance the two, but the plea with which I, I would like to with which I, I would like to close here is that I believe that there is a really serious role for the CGIR system, for the research community in thinking through practically what kind of models can really reconcile scale of mobilization of alignment potential and depth of impact, including the agri-SMEs, gender inclusion in, in agriculture and rural finance and small scale farmers. So this is a time for thought leadership on that and support to the action tracks. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, the rest of the conversation. Thank you, over.
Thank you very much, Tina, and sorry that I gave you a bigger role, but your last slide actually, or one of your last slides, showed that you are looking at all the active tracks. So, uh, so, so thank you so much for, for that presentation. And also, I think, highlighting the role of, uh, of, of uh, CGIR in, 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 the, in the path forward, I think, was a very important uh, remark there. Um, our next speaker is Daisy Martinez Ferron. Um, she is the regional coordinator for the CGAR Research Program for Climate Change, Agriculture, and Food Security, CCAS for short. Um, she is uh, with the Alliance of Biodiversity International and SEAF. Uh, and, and CCAFs, as, as you may know, has been working with several impact investment funds to look at the question of how to scale up investments related to climate change mitigation and adaptation. And she is also, or CCAPS is also looking at this, uh, what, what Bettina mentioned, this intersection of, of the generation and adoption of technologies with funding, in this case, funding coming from capital markets. Uh, so many thanks, Daisy. We look forward to your remarks. Thank you, Charlotte. And good morning, everyone. And thank you for the invitation to participate in this webinar. So yeah, climate change is exacerbating today's challenges to maintain our global and local food systems. Science has helped to design several strategies and technologies to facilitate adaptation of farm farming systems to a changing climate. However, a huge gap remains uh, regarding their adoption at scale by farmers and other uh, food system stakeholders. So since a few years back, science and research have also been contributing to unlock key barriers to enable the scaling of these strategies and technologies to adapt to climate change, such as access to finance. And today I would like to share with you how the CGIAR has informed key financial institutions to develop these mechanisms of sustainable finance to achieve impact towards the SDG goals. So the CGIAR aims to deliver science and innovation that advance uh, the transformation of food, land, and water systems in a climate crisis. The CGIAR Research Program on Climate Change, Agriculture, and Food Security bring together, brings together strategic research uh, to identify and address the most important interactions and synergies between climate change, agriculture, and food security. So CCAPS is leading the CGR sustainable finance work, which aims for harnessing science and innovation to reorient and leverage capital flows towards sustainable investments that transform food, land, and water systems. And how do we do this? So by designing innovative investment solutions and vehicles to catalyze private capital, which translates, translates into design to launch support to ensure a scientific rigor and maximize SDG impact of private investments in these systems. Also scaling scientific innovation and accelerate the digital revolution by designing and implementing pre-investment and post-investment technical assistance that scales CGIAR's science and research food systems transformation. And developing market intelligence and sustainable finance uh, for this uh, food, land, and water systems transformation that is providing cutting-edge uh, cutting research and business intelligence on sustainable finance and develop uh, a pipeline of high-impact investable projects that can be scaled through private capital. So the above include activities such as design and structure of sustainable climate-smart interventions, 
pipeline, uh, pipeline development, uh, provision of technical assistance, risk assessment and management tools, as well as impact measurement and monitoring uh, tools. So I will share to, with you those, these two cases in which uh, the CGIR has provided technical assistance to support the development of sustainable finance mechanisms to enable farmers, smallholder farmers, to increase their climate resilience and improve their livelihoods and incomes while reducing environmental impacts. So the first one is the 200 million Climate Smart Food System Fund uh, that Bettina actually mentioned in, in her intervention that will provide long-term expansion debt financing to agri-SMEs across the globe to support the transformation of climate to climate smart food systems. And the second one is the Small Farmers Climate Adaptation Fund that aims for investing a total of $30 million in the form of medium-term loans to around 20,000 smallholder farmers in seven countries in Latin America. So the first case, the, the first case, the Climate Smart Food System Fund uh, is led by a global impact invest, investor, which has vast experience in investing agribusiness. However, the negative impact of climate change on agri SMEs and smallholder farmers is increasing their business risk. So the CGIR proposed to integrate a science-based food system approach into the investment strategy to the fund of the fund and to design and structure a science-based technical assistance facility to implement science at each stage of the investment process. To this end, the CGIR did the initial research uh, to support the fund in identifying four main investment themes and related climate smart interventions, as well as the design of a novel impact screening tool for the investment officers of the fund. The technical assistance was, was tailored for each segment of the investment process to ensure progress towards the impact outcomes of the fund of increased productivity, adaptation, and mitigation. And the second example is the technical assessment of the microfinance institutions and, and the smallholders uh, farmers for the Smallholder Farmers Climate Adaptation Fund, SMAP. So the challenge there uh, was that, that was identified was that the microfinance institutions lack of climate change adaptation products or that could increase or reduce the vulnerability of climate uh, of the smallholder farmers. So the CJAR pulled its on ground resources and conducted a technical assessment in target countries, interviewing farmers and MFIs and developed for portfolios of adaptation measures that support smallholder farmers to increase their agricultural productivity and resilience. We developed on-field work and focus group discussions with key stakeholders, as well as socioeconomic and environmental analysis to inform the portfolio development, market validation, and development of tools and procedures to measure impact targets by MFIs and the fund itself. So very briefly, these two cases show that science can, can bridge the gap between sustainability and profitability to achieve climate smart agriculture and transform food systems. And so that our joint work has enabled financial institutions uh, to use the tools to promote climate smart agriculture by knowing the climate risk that producers face, but also the measures that they should implement to reduce that risk and how much would that 
cost. They also can know the return of investments and how to monitor them to demonstrate their contribution to environmental, social, and corporate governance criteria, as well as the SDGs. We are convinced that the design uh, of innovative and science-based solutions to support pipeline development and new standalone investment opportunities is crucial to achieve impact at scale of climate smart agriculture and therefore facilitate the transformation of food systems to a more sustainable pathway through the alliances and working together with uh, research institutions, financial institutions, as well as different uh, organizations and stakeholders in the food systems. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Daisy, for presenting that very important uh, work by CCAPS. Uh, very, very important as we look at, uh, at, at trying to increase the amount of, uh, of, of investments in, in the ag sector and beyond in, in the food systems sector. Um, our next and, and final speaker in, in this uh, set of panelists is Tony Siampanas. He is the Director for Scaling Positive Agriculture at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And, and the council, of course, has been leading private sector engagement in preparing for the UN Food System Summit. Uh, they're playing a very important role in various aspects uh, of, of the summit. And they will come to the, maybe already to the pre-summit, you'll tell us, Tony, with um, what they're calling defined policy asks. So what is the private sector looking for in terms of actions from governments? And they are also preparing a business declaration, which if I understand correctly, will set out the ambition of their own um, uh, commitments uh, to accelerate the transition to more equitable and more sustainable uh, food systems. So Tony, we're delighted to have you with us and we look forward to your remarks. Thank you, Charlotte, and thank you everyone for having us today. Um, so as Charlotte mentioned, WBCSD, we're very engaged in this food system space. Uh, we ourselves, we're a nonprofit representing around 200 leading uh, businesses driving towards sustainability. Um, I just want to talk about three things in the context of what's going on today for everyone. Firstly, just very quickly, what does private sector engagement into food systems transformation actually look like very briefly? I want to give a couple of examples of what we're seeing being done by companies um, in this sector. And then indeed, what is coming up and what is key for the Food Systems Summit and the pre-summit at the end of July? So first, just what does private sector engagement in this space look like? The first thing to realize, of course, is that the system is complex. When you look at the private sector, you've got businesses engaging right through from inputs onto the farm, traders, processors, retailers, as well as the finance and investment community of banks and asset managers working here along with impact investors. So all of those entities are what we look at when we think about the private sector. And they have to be working on large, medium and, and small scales. And um, a really important piece of work we put together um, in WBCSD for the private sector in 2019 helped those businesses identify what pathways for transformation within the food sector look like. And that was around helping businesses know about and what's material priority, um, but how to address some of the big risks in the system, uh, climate's risks to agriculture, which we've heard about, natural capital losses, health inequality, as well as the opportunity that is there for business to transition into the markets of the future 
um, and the smaller emerging markets of today that are going to help us reach um, the scale that we want to get to. Um, those pathways, which we, we've also seen reflected in the Food Systems Summit, which is, is, is great, around the role of nature positive production, around equitable value distribution along the value chain, um, and how to shift to more healthy and sustainable diets. Now, all of those pathways are impossible to achieve unless we have finance as an, as an important enabler to that, um, alongside finance, um, alongside enablers like um, policy and innovation um, and traceability, for example, being a really important area for the private sector. So WBCSD has been su supporting the Food Systems Summit um, by overseeing the private sector guiding group. And that reports into the Secretariat and our, our president oversees that and helps provide those contributions into what's, uh, what's going to be, be happening. So the question is what's being done? What are we seeing actually happen amongst, amongst some of those um, organizations? And so we heard uh, Bettina and others talk about really important pledges and coalitions which are coming, which is, is fantastic. I wanted to give two examples of really tangible areas that are, many of the businesses I work with are, are very interested in. The first one is how to scale investments into soil health. Um, the space for soil health and finance regenerative agriculture um, is in incredibly important for businesses right now. And there's a lot of momentum on how to address the incentives, which was also mentioned by Rob, that, are, that can relate to more sustainable soil health practices by farmers. Soil health is the foundation to SDG2. And businesses that I work with know that um, soils are under threat from degradation, and, but there's a lot of wins that come out from soil health. Um, so we've been working on a soil investment hub in WBCSD, which we are bringing to support um, the Action Track 3 work on soils and regenerative agriculture. And this is about looking at soils as an asset. It's not really looked at by business as an asset in the same way that buildings or new product lines are. And that's an asset that provides a return on investment. Um, and what we want to see from that is the flow of investment into soils through different investment channels and mechanisms to achieve that. Now, that's going to depend for businesses on where they are in the value chain. Are they a downstream player or do they own land where they can make investments with farmers? And um, what is the role of new markets like uh, carbon markets in order to support that? But also, indeed, how does business partner with local governments to look at the repurposing of agricultural subsidies? We believe there is a huge opportunity for increased investment into soil carbon um, and soil health more broadly. Um, when you look at the LEAF coalition, that's the Lowering Emissions by Accelerating Forest Finance Coalition, uh, that pledged uh, governments, uh, businesses, civil society groups pledged uh, billions of dollars into forest carbon schemes. Uh, we believe similar schemes are possible in soil carbon and soil health, but we also know that they have to be underpinned by robust standards um, for how these markets operate in the voluntary, and we'd love to see more regulatory spaces operating. Um, second is on the alignment of uh, banks or working with banks to help them align some of their lending portfolios towards the Paris Agreement and a just transition. So many private sector companies are making net zero commitments to climate change. We're seeing this within the food and agriculture space. This is an incredibly important motivator. Um, but what we're seeing in agriculture is that it's highly complex. Um, but what we, what we wanted to do is bring together about 10 private sector agricultural banks to help them understand their lending portfolios 
and, and how they can align them to Paris to more climate smart outcomes, but also a just transition for many farmers and, and agribusinesses involved in all of those lending practices. Um, so we believe that there's the critical gap here that's gonna really help mobilize some of these changes is on data. So banks make hundreds of thousands of loans to farmers um, and what they can do when they make those loans is find preferential ways to support more um, climate smart practices. But they can't do that unless they have the data on where those emissions lie and, and where they can work with farmers um, to actually improve some of those practices, be it around livestock or cereal farming. So we think that that's a really interesting space um, of movement. Now, what are we doing next? Um, what's happening? Um, so really, we want to you know, bring food to the forefront of this green finance agenda um, for the Food Systems Summit. Uh, we've been working quite closely um, on a set of policy asks, um, as Charlotte mentioned. This includes uh, the role of repurposing agricultural subsidies, uh, the importance of having a really clear North Star that businesses can operate to provide outcome-orientated solutions um, towards the sector. And the second thing we've also been doing is supporting um, a new coalition called the Finance Network Food Systems. And this is bringing together many of the finance organizations working around food and agriculture and to help advocate um, for the role of food and finance and the private sector in helping achieve some of the, the interesting innovations that I was just talking about earlier. And we've also lastly developed along with that a business declaration and um, which is um, open for signing now and a call to action for how businesses will be supporting some of the critical outcomes of the Food Systems Summit. Um, so I'll stop there and hand back to uh, the moderator and then happy to talk a bit more within questions and answers about some of the details there. So thank you. Great, we appreciate the, the, those remarks. Thank you very much, Tony. So we're gonna move to Q&A now, and, and I would ask uh, the speakers to, to try to give very quick answers because I would like to get to as many of them as we can. And um, the first question is for Eugenio. It comes from um, Hildegard uh, Lingnau. Um, the question is, thank you very much for the information about the amount of funding that's needed, but could you also elaborate a bit on how the money should be spent? Um, how should this be done? And maybe this gives you an opportunity to talk about the Zero Hunger Fund and Alliance, Eugenio. Um, yes, the idea of having a, we, uh, a, we need a, a specific programs at the country levels. That's the idea of the Zero Hunger Alliance and Fund to support the countries to develop, the countries joining this alliance to develop this program. So uh, yes, we have the money, but then you have to be allocated to specific programs with clear objectives, uh, what exactly that we want to do, what does it mean zero hunger in your country, what are the environmental and nutritional interventions that you want to support. Um, um, Karen mentioned all the work uh, by CEDES 2030 to identify different uh, interventions that, are, that have in, impact, policy interventions that have impact. They talk about technological interventions that have impact. But all these things, uh, and, and Bettina mentioned the fact that they have to be uh, tailored to a specific uh, uh, local condition. So you need to put together these programs with a specificity at the country level. That's the idea of the Zero Hunger Alliance. And then uh, also to be able to mobilize all the resources, domestic and international, as Karen was mentioning, for that program in that country, uh, in the specific regions that you think that that may make, uh, they will make a, a difference. 
So I cannot say which one that those um, uses would be, but the idea of having a, a vehicle that can help countries to develop those programs uh, and then implement and monitor the impact is behind this Zero Hunger uh, Alliance. Excellent. Um, Yo, I'd like to uh, direct this question to you. It comes from Maria Paz Santibanes, who works uh, with AICA. Um, the question is an, it's an excellent one. Is it assumed that people currently suffering from hunger um, are able to afford their food at some point, also in the future? How do we take into consideration the potential change in food prices as we look at some of these estimates? Well, I think the the estimates do include uh, obviously the cost of food because I mean that's a really important uh, factor in. It's not just the fact whether this food is physically available; it's also the, very much the fact whether people can afford it, <clears throat> given the incomes, etc. And so, I mean the um, the first presentation by by Corinne, I mean she clearly indicated, I mean the the really dramatic figures in terms of hunger that we've seen. But if you look at the numbers on, on malnutrition and on uh, beyond just extreme hunger or, or, or real hunger. I mean, those are much worse, actually. We're talking about two to three billion people in the world who cannot afford uh, a healthy diet. And so clearly a lot of the, on the transformation issue, a big issue there is how do you deal with these trade-offs between or potential trade-offs between uh, access to food and dealing with sustainability and things. I think that came out clearly in, in Rob's presentation, who looked both at diets, income of farmers, and of uh, and, and the sustainability effects. Great. Um, th thank you, Yo. Rob, let's ask you this question. It comes from an anonymous questioner. How, how do free trade agreements and market competitive, competitiveness for small producers in developing countries play into uh, this topic? Well, that's a um, difficult question. So it, uh, yeah, there can be um, various answers uh, to it. Of course, um, first trade agreements uh, are important, more in general for better food system outcomes to both um, provide uh, so for the trading system uh, provide resilience to food, national food systems uh, when they have a crisis, and also to keep um, food prices affordable to all populations. Um, at the same time that uh, trade agreements can uh, help phase both in and out uh, any protection to um, domestic farmers to uh, strengthen their production systems, but to, to make clear that that. Uh, is temporary and is phased out in, in ways that uh, would build greater uh, resilience and also competitiveness for the international markets. Um, more in general, it's, it's not just trade agreements can do it. It uh, depends a lot on better investments in the, the food sectors that uh, will induce better practices, um, um, greater productivity, but above all, particularly in developing countries, uh, better integration of supply chains that uh, better connect the different segments in the market so that uh, yield greater efficiency. And through that, both will keep um, prices down to local level so it's affordable, as well as uh, make um, uh, food production also more competitive uh, internationally uh, in countries which now may have weak, uh, weakly developed uh, food systems. And thank you very much, Rob. Um, Daisy, uh, Russell Crawford is asking a question, which I think CCAPS must have looked at. 
um, given the, the role of uh, the important role of irrigation in, in adapting to, to climate change, what are the sources for funding to support the increased irrigation in, in developing countries? Thank you, Charlotte, for the question. Yes, it's a very interesting one because in, in the analysis that we did uh, for the Latin American countries and this MAP uh, fund that I was mentioning about, we saw that one of the key uh, aspects in order to facilitate um, access to, to finance for implementing different portfolio of practices, the irrigation technologies were one uh, of the most, um, uh, the, the ones that provided most benefits in terms of, uh, of uh, for the farmers and for the microfinance institutions when they were um, financing those kind of technologies. So I think that um, the, the way in which we can frame the portfolio so that uh, a variety of uh, technologies, practices can be um, uh, set up uh, in order to be able to be fi financed by different uh, microfinance institutions would be a way to actually increase the irrigation uh, mechanisms, mechanisms and technologies uh, adopted by farmers uh, in the agricultural sector. Great, thank you, Daisy. Um, Tony, let me turn to you with, with a question. Um, so the, the, both the Zero Hunger Fund and then the, the Zero Hunger Alliance proposal both foresee contributions from the private sector. Um, I think the, the alliance idea includes how potentially to better leverage some of that, uh, that money coming from the private sector. I'm just curious how uh, the WBSCD views some of these proposals, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, but what is the thinking there? Obviously, companies are there to return value to their shareholders, right? But increasingly, um, returning value to the shareholders does mean having uh, a, a, a robust ESG program, for example. How, how would potential investments uh, figure in in how companies might be evaluated from an ESG perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these ESG requirements are now a, a major driver for companies and they're the exact reason why I gave the example of um, this net zero commitment from companies driving um, this change. Equally on the social side, um, there is a strong component of equity in value chains. Um, so we've been working closely on the role of um, living wage and living incomes and, and how they play a role in particular commitments that we um, expect from the private sector um, to support that side of the um, sustainable development equation. Um, I think these investments ultimately will 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 be quite varied depending on the company, like I was saying before, where they are in the value chain. And um, ultimately it has to be about something that's of material priority to um, the, the progress of the company. Um, and that materiality is about, you know, integrating these requirements into the DNA of, of, of companies. And um, so, you know, digital climate advisory services, for example, we've seen huge growth in that market in the last um, five years, particularly within and smallholder and, and smaller farming settings um, around the world. And this is a huge area of investment by companies like uh, Yara and IBM 
and, and, and other companies working in this sector, uh, because we're seeing this, this opportunity to bundle services, uh, extension advice, uh, market linkages, um, access to inputs, access to, to knowledge and finance. Um, and so, frankly, those investments are going to come where it's materially needed in the value chain of the company, uh, where they're sourcing from. So there's resilience built in, but all, will also come from where we're seeing markets and growing um, and those opportunities driving it. Um, but for us, this ESG piece is really key. Uh, we think that companies, leading companies in this sector, should be making commitments on, on climate, on nature, on inequality, and on transparent disclosure of their progress to investors so that the most sustainable companies can rise to the top, be rewarded by lower risk of um, lower capital, lower cost of capital, for example, from the market. So we believe that if they make those disclosures in the right way, they can also win by being more sustainable. Great, uh, thank you very much, Tony. And it's, it's, I think it's fantastic how the council is pushing uh, maybe sometimes the envelope a little bit on these issues, but, uh, but I think that's, that's really important work. Um, so I'm Alan, very- Can I just come in here yeah. on yeah, the please. ESG thing? Because I think if we only rely on the ESG side of things from the private sector, we are not going to raise the financing and the private sector investment that we need. This has to be part of core business activities. The private sector is doing the job that they need to do. The public sector has to do the job they need to do. I think if we bucket all these types of investments into ESG, we're not going to get neither the scale nor the quality um, of investment we need, and it's not going to be long lasting. So I really believe that this has to be part of core business activities. Um, this has to be about core business making sense to invest in a lot of these low and middle income countries. And I think a lot of companies do see that. But I think if we keep it in the ESG domain, we're not going to get where we need to in the next 10 years. So, so if I may uh, respond to that, I think you're absolutely right. But in a way, it's both, right? Because if you make those investments, because it makes good business sense, uh, that can also then be part of your ESG reporting, um, which has its additional benefits to the private sector. So I would think in order to really incentivize that those kinds of investments, you might look at it from, from both angles. Um, but, but look, this has been a really fascinating discussion. We've, we've had uh, actually a lot more questions, which unfortunately we can't get to, but, but I really do want to turn to um, a very special speaker that we have with us today. Uh, we're, we're very honored that the chairman of the, the science group for the UNFSS is with us. Um, and it's my great pleasure now to turn uh, the floor over to Joachim von Braun, who will try to wrap things up for us. And, and Joachim, if I may, another question has come in, which, which I think is, is a good one for you perhaps to address in your remarks. Um, so this question is a, is, is, is a very basic one about what will happen at the UN Food System Summit, right? So what are the key commitments from governments, the private sector and other stakeholders to finance um, agriculture and food system transformation? And will these be monitored? How, how, how will this actually work in, in practice? Um, over to you, Joachim. Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte. Let me start with that question, which you just uh, threw at me. Um, uh, definitely um, the follow up to the summit will be monitored. Um, and um, the action propositions uh, will be tracked by the science community, by the civil society, 
And I'm also pretty sure by the business community and primarily by countries. So expectations have risen high in the context of these uh, more than 100 uh, national dialogues. Um, I was uh, spending early afternoon uh, European time with, uh, with African, in a meeting with an African ministers forum of more than 30 ministers organized uh, uh, to prepare for the summit. So expectations are high. The topic of finance came up time and again in that, uh, in that conversation. Um, I mean, this was a sequence of three minute speeches uh, uh, where some of us uh, were um, asked to, uh, uh, to, to comment and, and make an intervention also from science and strategic perspectives. Um, so how to get the financing done is very much on the top of uh, ministers' minds, uh, for instance, in Africa, but also elsewhere, including in Europe. I found um, uh, the conversation which you had, um, I, I connected an hour late. Um, so uh, I need to make this qualification. And thank you, Charlotte, that you still asked me to make a few remarks. So it will be selective hearing that is dominating my um, uh, wrap-up comments. Um, let me start by uh, saying um, how important the work which you, Eugenio, have done and have communicated, how important that is for the pre-summit and the summit. We need to come to uh, a coherent set of messages on uh, not only what it takes and that is the costing. And it was great that Karin uh, Smaller was uh, um, putting that uh, on the table, but also then how to finance. Not separating the two issues, they need to come together. Um, and uh, my feeling is uh, they are not yet uh, together in the run up to the summit. We have the costing and action agenda um, here and lots of game changings. And we have the uh, finance discussion there. I think IFPRI is um, excellently positioned to bring the two topics together. It's always the first question, what do you want to finance? Which I get when talking to senior policymakers. Um, uh, um, uh, I, there was a statement by Akin Adesina in the meeting with the Africans, so the president of the African Development Bank, and um, Eugenio, he highlighted the need to connect to the uh, SDR opportunities, to connect the uh, scaling up of the SDRs to the um, Food System Summit financing agenda, uh, roughly the way um, you and I have been pontificating. Um, here and elsewhere. So that's a good sign. Uh, I think the regional development banks, in addition to the World Bank and the IMF, have to be nudged to, to do what Akin Adesina did today, to articulate that. Um, Rob, I, I was uh, very interested in your presentation on repurposing. And um, it is... Uh, extremely important uh, to, uh, to highlight that simple removal will not do the trick for a sustainable 
Food Systems Summit, a simple remo removal of the 350 plus billion of, uh, of distortive subsidies will not do the trick. Um, and um, uh, speaking of the 700 plus billions uh, as a package a deal that could be tapped uh, would also be misleading. Um, the beautiful results which you showed on R&D repurposing, so shifting resources from, uh, uh, from distortive subsidies to R&D are a great story. I would like to ask you, if not yet done, to add a scenario on um, repurposing towards human capital, nutrition, and, um, and social safety nets. Um, and maybe combine that further with um, land use change restrictions uh, so that the environmental and people agenda come together. But uh, your message, um, as far as I could pick up and also have heard from others, um, is very clear. Um, we um, would be misleading policymakers if we would argue for simplistic uh, uh, repurposing approaches. Um, uh, and that is, I think, a critical message from, from IFPRI. Um, um, uh, Tony, I found it very important what you said about um, uh, investing in soils, a topic dear to my heart. Uh, five years ago, we published this work on economics of land and soil degradation. We came up then with a 300 billion per annum um, dollar figure, what it costs. And um, the carbon market are a dream uh, that needs to be pursued but we need to invest into the technology to monitor. The best monitored soils in Europe, in the Netherlands and in Southern Germany are not yet with the existing technology monitorable to see change in carbon in soils on a per hectare per pixel basis. We need that. It is technically feasible. Uh, that's a moonshot technology, which we really need to invest in order to unleash the opportunities. And that should be also part of the summit agenda. Um, I um, uh, would like to uh, maybe sum up uh, uh, Charlotte uh, on um, what we in the scientific group are highlighting for finance. Number one, double the annual international development funding, the order dedicated to food system and rural development. Uh, this could be um, the foundation for an end hunger fund. Secondly, explore uh, the special drawing rights opportunities and issue the zero hunger bonds by the countries um, to help finance their food system transformation. Um, and uh, the pledge by companies, investment funds, and philanthropies. Um, I want to note that uh, the World Bank Group, the regional development banks, and the IMF are best positioned to find the mechanisms to assure the, these um, um, finance and investment agenda items. We need to uh, push further, and um, I want to thank you for giving me the floor at the end of this meeting, I, I think uh, it is very important that if we articulate at the pre-summit this agenda in a coherent way, in bullet points that can be absorbed. Um, and um, so we have uh, less than two weeks to get this well articulated. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Joachimit. Again, we're, we're honored that you were able to, to help us close out this session and, and really an excellent set of remarks. And, and I think there's a, a great deal of energy on this topic, and yet there's a great deal still to be uh, nailed down. Um, so we'll, we'll take that as some homework. Um, many, many thanks to all of our speakers. We're very appreciative of you joining us. We know it's a busy time for everybody in the run-up to, to the summit, but I think we had a great discussion. And I would also very much like to thank the um, IFPRI events management team and a huge thanks to our audience and many thanks to you for the questions and apologies that we, we could not take more of them. Have a great rest of your day, wherever you may be. Thank you so much.